This is the podcast, David R. Wellens Reads Literature, The Romantic Period. And on this episode, we'll be, uh, I'll be reading uh, from the Norton Anthology about uh, the slave trade and the literature of abolition. Um, I think what I'll do is I'll just um, uh, cover the, cover the uh, introduction. Um, and then after that, uh, the next... Uh, the next uh, episode, or or after after the introduction, I'll read um, the poetry and about the life of John Newton. Um, and uh, it's just, it's just a few. There are just a few selections of his poetry, and um, and that should that should uh, serve as a good introduction to this section. The Slave Trade and the Literature of Abolition Late 18th century Britons prided themselves on how their constitution safeguarded individual liberty. Yet, their economy depended increasingly on wealth obtained through the enslavement of others. Members of Parliament and even the missionary arm of the Anglican Church numbered among the absentee owners of Caribbean plantations that exploited the labor of enslaved Africans. The maritime industries of Bristol and Liverpool were heavily involved in procuring this labor supply. Beginning in the 17th century, a triangular trade had been established, which saw ships sail to the west coast of Africa to buy or kidnap human cargo, voyage across the Atlantic to the New World, where those slaves would be sold at tremendous premium, and then, in the third leg of the triangle, returned to Britain carrying the colonial goods that fed Europeans growing appetites for tobacco, rum, and sugar. By the 1790s, more than 40,000 40, Africans annually were being packed into British slave ships. The mortality rate for these people during the horrific Middle Passage has been estimated at one in six. One third died within three years of disembarking in the West Indies from tropical diseases or the mistreatment and sexual abuse meted out to them on the plantations. Through the first three quarters of the 18th century, those few British people who had considered these evils at all, had for the most part rationalized them away. Slavery seemed simply the cost of doing business in the New World, and the West Indian planters' rights to secure possession of their property, even property in persons, appeared beyond challenge. The link between slave labor and the consumer pleasures that define their daily lives escaped most people's notice. How little think the giddy and the gay, while sipping over the sweets of charming tea, how oft their luxuries robs the wretch of rest, lamented one Mary Burkett in her 1789 poem on the slave trade. Whereas, across the Atlantic, the white settlers of the southern United States and the white elites of the Sugar Islands were outnumbered and continually anxious with reason, that the enslaved might revolt and avenge their wrongs, while Britons, by contrast, 
contrived to enjoy the fruits of slavery without med med meditating uh, meditating the, on its costs. The movement for abolition, abolishing, uh, the movement for abolishing the slave trade that was launched in the 1780s challenged that willful ignorance. The abolitionists mobilized the power that the stories and poems they distributed had to break down the boundaries between out there and in here. They brought distant suffering and violence home. Almost every major poet working in the late 18th century wrote for their cause. For pro-slavery writers, by contrast, prose was overwhelmingly the medium of choice. In amassing, in an often lurid idiom, a dossier of national crime, this literature changed how the public thought about collective moral responsibility. It also evidenced the power that might accrue to those who harnessed the emergent force of mass literacy. At its 1787 launch, the Society for Effecting the Abolition of the Trade in Slaves comprised only a small circle. Thomas Clarkson, most famously, the lawyer Granville Sharp, the Quaker publisher James Phillips, and a few others. Nonetheless, abolitionism, ab abolitionism fast became a popular movement. That same year, two-thirds of the adult male population of Manchester signed petitions calling on Parliament to investigate the trade. Later, 300,000 families pledged to, pledged to abstain from purchasing Caribbean sugar. Though marginalized by later historians, members of Britain's black community, an impoverished group who at this time numbered 10 to 15,000, also found public voices in the struggle. There were black writers such as Oluda Equano and Otaba Cuguano, and before them, figures such as James Somerset, the slave who had the audacity to test white men's law and so forced the judiciary to declare outright in the Mansfield Judgment of 1772 that, in fact, there was no legal basis for slavery on English ground. It was difficult for these activists to parlay altered public opinion into legislative action. William Wilberforce, the society's chief representative in Parliament, was consistently outmaneuvered by pro-slavery politicians who variously dismissed the witnesses he introduced cited biblical precedents legitimizing modern slavery, or insisted that, thanks to their owners' benevolent care, West Indian slaves were better off than British laborers. His motions for abolition were repeatedly voted down or allowed to die in committee. Defeats bitterly memorialized in Anna Letitia Barbode's 1791 poem, Epistle to William Wilberforce, on page 46, the radical turn that revolutionary activity in France took in 1790s proved another setback. Pro-slavery agitators seized the opportunity to portray abolition as dangerous to social stability. The petitioning among white British subjects 
that had occurred in the early stages of the abolitionists campaigning looked differently or looked different in the altered context. A menacing attempt on the part of the governed to overawe their rightful governors. Then revolution in the French sugar colony of Saint-Domingue, modern Haiti, led by former slaves Jean-Jacques de Salines and Toussaint Louverture, occasioned a new racist demonology. The carnage was decried as the inevitable consequence of recklessly introducing primitive minds to modern politics, schemes of perfection. Nonetheless, subsequent events made apparent the penalties Britain would pay for continued support of colonial slavery. The few British soldiers who survived their tours of duty in the West Indies during the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars returned with news of just how resolute an enemy slave seeking their freedom could be. Napoleon's reintroduction of slavery into the French Empire in 1802 enable supporters of abolition to parry the suggestion that the disruption of lucrative British industry would aid Britain's commercial rivals. Instead, they could link support for their cause to the war effort. In 1807, Parliament at last voted for abolition. Wishfully, Wilberforce, Clarkson, and their associates had proposed that with the ending of the trade, Slavery itself would naturally and immediately cease to be. In fact, freedom was long in arriving in the empire. It took 26 years, another wave of political agitation in England, spearheaded by the new anti-slavery society, bloody rebellions in Barbados in 16, I mean in 1816, Guyana in 1823, and Jamaica in 1831, and finally, a reform of parliament that reduced the number of votes controlled by the West Indian interests before the Emancipation Bill was enacted. The strategies for depicting violence, suffering, and retaliation that anti- and pro-slavery writers developed over the course of this long debate altered the cultural landscape. The influence of their writings is discernible throughout Romantic literature. In Romantic authors, apocalyptic imaginings, explorations of themes of guilt and confession, interest in the workings of pity and consciousness of how language can fail in the face of atrocity. The texts that follow, which in the main documents, the early phase of the abolitionist movement, suggest the, the variety of moves writers made to galvanize the attention of the reading, reading public. And this next section is about is about and by William, uh, John Newton. John Newton, 1725-1807, is remembered today as the author of Amazing Grace, a beautiful hymn <clears throat> interwoven in complex ways with the history of slavery. By 1852, the hymn was so important to the tradition of African-American gospel music that the novelist Harriet Beecher Stowe arranged for her slave hero in Uncle Tom's cabin to sing it at a moment of despondency. There is a second conflicting way, though, in which Amazing Grace is linked to the history of slavery through the biography of its author. 
when in 1779 Newton wrote Faith's Review and Expectation, as Amazing Grace was originally titled, he was already a celebrity minister in the Anglican Church, famous for the narrative of his spiritual awakening he had published in 1764. He was also a former captain of a slave ship who during the 1750s had made three voyages down Africa's windward coast, doing so after his conversion. Late in life, Newton looked back at his slaver past a second time as he stepped forth to print as a champion of abolition. To read Amazing Grace alongside this book, Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade in 1788, which Newton presented as his act of public confession, is to see how evangelical Christianity's themes of sin and redemption provided a framework (coughs) for the abolitionist political engagement. It suggests how the abolitionists Preoccupation with their own spiritual welfare would overshadow sometimes their consciousness of African suffering. The first poem is called Faith's Review and Expectation, Amazing Grace. Faith's Review and Expectation, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me, his word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be, as long as life endures. Yes, when this flesh and heart shall fail, and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine. But God, who called me here below, will be forever mine. That's 1779. And uh, I'm going to end this section because the next section is pretty long. Uh, Next time we'll talk about Thomas Clarkson and, um, and read his writings. But for now, I hope you enjoyed this introductory section of... The Slave Trade and the Literature of Abolition. Um, we'll, we'll be covering several sections of writers about uh, about the slave trade and the literature of abolition. Um, now, just remember, uh, to make any donations, um, that's listed in the uh, credits of my podcast um, through Anchor, or you can just uh, shoot, me a, shoot me a transfer of funds um, um, through Zelle, um, uh, a trans um, um, donation of any of any size uh, to David R. Wellens at gmail.com and I really appreciate um, I really appreciate your support and hope to continue this podcast with your support. Thank you very much and have a great day.